And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, biblical writers described the heart and soul of their stories through the landscape of the biblical world. They give us the Red Sea, the desert of Egypt, the wilderness in which the children of Abraham wandered, the valley of Jezreel, the hills and sea of Galilee, the river Jordan, the Dead Sea, the promised land, and the valley of dry bones. They even created geographical images as they described the hoped-for future at a time when, as Isaiah 40 puts it, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. See, friends, in the Bible, geography is theology, which for geography geeks like me is good news. In this light, mountains take on a profound meaning in Scripture, especially in the writings of Isaiah. Mountains provide a way of giving language to, of talking about places, moments and ways in which uh, human beings experience the presence and transforming reality of God. Mountains are a way of talking about what the Celtic tradition calls thin places. Mountains represent those times when God happens in a particular way for us. And those experiences change our world. You see, it was on a mountain that Abraham nearly sacrificed his own son, Isaac, because of what he heard God asking him to do. It was on that mountain, called Moriah, that the angel stayed Abraham's hand until he learned that grace is closer to the heart of God than stern sacrifice and blind obedience. It was on a mountain called Horeb or Sinai that Moses encountered God in a burning bush. Moses came to the mountain running from his past and he left the mountain on a mission for his God. In Exodus 3, he's told, Go down, Moses, way out of Egypt's land. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And it was later on that mountain that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments that would change and revive the life of the people. The mountain is a place of transformation. And the writer Isaiah envisions the mountain as a place where people will experience God's love and the reign of God's kingdom. On the mountaintop, they will beat their swords into plowshares. On the mountaintop, they won't hurt, they won't destroy For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's on the mountaintop that Isaiah sees and glimpses and beholds the new heavens and the new earth. And so it isn't an accident that we then have the Sermon on the Mount. Or that Jesus designates the twelve apostles on a mountain. Or that Jesus must climb the Mount of Transfiguration before he can walk the lonesome valley bearing the cross. It's no coincidence that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives the Great Commission and sends the disciples out into the world to preach good news and make disciples from, you guessed it, a mountain. The mountain is the place 
of God's transforming, renewing and reconciling presence. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord was not just about let's climb higher. On the mountain, God transfigures the world from the nightmare of death and destruction into God's dream of wholeness and life. And at the heart of that transformation are women, men and children whose lives are being changed because they have come to know something of God. The vision in our reading from Isaiah this morning spells out the move from a narrow focus on one tribe to a vision of people from all nations and races and clans and tribes gathered around the mountain of God. The writer understands that people are transformed by their relationship with God and each other and therefore become part of God's ongoing work of changing the world. Listen to the reading again. Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And I think there's a pattern in this text, and you may have noticed it too. The people come, they learn, and they live differently. They come They learn, they live differently. And so first they come on the mountain, they enter this deeper relationship with God and with each other. You can't do that if you're not there. They have to gather. In the 6th century, a monk named Dorotheus of Gaza taught that the goal of the Christian life is to live within the love of God. He said that creation is like the spokes of a wheel with God in the middle. And the closer we come to the centre of the wheel and to God, the closer we therefore become to each other. And alternatively, we draw closer to each other, and as we do that, we come closer to God. For we are all children of God, and we've all been created in God's image and likeness. We come to the mountain, then, and experience a deepened and revived relationship with God and with each other. You can't have one without the other. Second, people come, but then people learn. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. They listened, they learned God's message, God's instruction, God's teaching. And then thirdly, they lived differently as a result. They walked God's paths. They lived God's ways of love and life. They beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. They don't make war anymore. Coming and learning has changed the way they live and interact with the world. People come, they learn, they live differently. And in doing so, they are transformed and then share in God's ongoing work of transforming the world. And this pattern repeats in how Jesus forms his first disciples and sends them out. First, he invites them to come. Come and see, he says, follow me. Jesus calls his disciples to him in order to enter into a deeper relationship with them. That's what baptism is all about, this deepened relationship with God and with each other. And then Jesus teaches his disciples. 
They learn from his words, they learn from his actions, they learn just by being in his presence. They learn good news. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls his first disciples in Matthew chapter 4, and in the very next chapter, as Jenny read to us, he takes them up a mountain to teach them in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we look again at the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus does this again. After his resurrection, Jesus takes the disciples to a mountain and he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We form disciples, we are formed as disciples through baptism and teaching and living life together so that we can find a deeper relationship with God and each other. We learn and then we live the gospel of Jesus. And then this relationship transforms and changes us so that the way we live together and the way that we live in the places where God has put us is different. If we glance at the story of the transfiguration at Mark chapter 9, as Jesus begins the journey towards his death, we find him taking Peter and James and John to a mountain. And as they pray, the disciples see Jesus transfigured. They see him changed as if they can see his very humanity illuminated by his very divinity. In the, division, in the vision rather, that the disciples see, they also see Moses and they also see Elijah talking to Jesus. Now that's significant for several reasons. We could spend many Sundays on the Transfiguration and still have a lot more Sundays to go. But I think one of the reasons why it's interesting is that the Old Testament tells us that both Moses and Elijah go to a mountain and have an experience of God. They go to the mountain of God, they're transformed by that encounter, and they go from the mountain to live differently and to change the world. The spiritual transformation didn't cause them to avoid the world. It led them to engage with it in a deeper way and to share in God's mission of repairing and restoring that which is broken in our world. So I don't think it's an accident that Moses and Elijah are present as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. And I don't think it's an accident that, like the two prophets of old, Jesus leaves that mountain and goes into the world to take up his cross in order that we might find new life. And you see, in these moments on that mountain, Jesus wasn't being reshaped into something that he wasn't, but it was more of a disclosure, more of a revelation of who he was and is. As well as Jesus being stretched and shaped in that moment, the disciples are coming to understand him in a new way. They are being stretched and shaped too. The landscape of the world around them and their understanding of it was being changed and transformed. The love and faith and justice and mercy and compassion that we see in Jesus will stretch us and transform us and challenge us if we let it. It's what being a disciple of Jesus, friends, is all about. That's what it means to make a difference in this world. It's what it means to live the dream 
of God. And at the foundation of all of this are words that God has spoken to God's people through the prophets. We find in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Or in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the people. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And so from this new heart comes new life. Transformed hearts lead to transformed lives. And transformed lives lead to a changed world. And friends, the love of God that we know in Christ remains the world's most powerful source of transformation. The good news of Jesus can change our lives and the lives of our world for good. It has done for thousands of years, and it can do so again and again and again. Over this summer, we'll be hearing some of the stories of our friends. We began hearing from Samuel this morning. We're hearing about the difference that Jesus has made in their lives and in the lives of those around them, how it impacts them. And Jesus continues to transform my life. I know I'm not his best disciple. I have my moments, but I'm also broken and sinful. I love the Lord, and I pray that the gospel of Jesus will continue to change my life. I hope that is your prayer too. So friends, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in God's paths, that we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. As the hymn says, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great meeting in the promised land. Friends, discipleship happens as we come as we learn, as we live differently, together and in the places where God has put us. Jesus changes us, and we're called to work with him in changing the world. Jesus calls us all, every one of us, to come and to learn and to live differently and to be part of changing the world. Let's do it. Amen.